this is episode 15, I think, of the Reading Tolkien podcast. So, a bit of a milestone, I guess, 15 episodes, sort of. And today, uh, we're going to look at the Rings of Power as a concept in Tolkien's fiction. So, sort of divorced from just the Lord of the Rings book itself, we're going to think about what, you know, what these artifacts uh, do, which is a question that people often have, uh, especially if they only read The Lord of the Rings. And we're going to think about some of the thematic implications, implications in terms of the meaning of the, you know, the, the mythology or the fiction um, with regards to the rings of power. And in particular, we'll be looking at the three elvish rings and what they do. And in order to do that today, uh, we're looking at two texts, sort of, I guess in a vague sense, we'll be looking at The Lord of the Rings, although we're not going to be referring to that too much. We're actually going to look at Tolkien's letter to Milton Waldman at the beginning of the Silmarillion, and then of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, which is the end of the Silmarillion, or the final part of the Silmarillion. So two texts from from that volume. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because these two texts, um, they discuss, in some sense, the whole mythology, but they go into detail with regards to the um, the rings, especially the three elvish elvish rings, and what they do, and and what they're what they're intended for, etc. So, uh, and, and interestingly enough, they they, they do that in some sense in more depth than the Lord of the Rings book itself, which is more much more elusive and about the power of the three rings, although I think the Lothlorien chapters sort of sort of form a um, again a sort of elusive uh, allude to to that that power um, in a different sort of way. So that, that's really the plan for today and we'll begin um, in a moment by just going over briefly the nature of those two texts and also sort of how Tolkien develops those ideas. But first of all, how are you, Shreeder, and what are you drinking today? Important. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most important question. Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Um, I'm just drinking some some um, some table wine from, from Trader Joe's. It's just, a, you know, um, some sort of red wine that does what it says on the tin. <laughs> Trader Joe's, huh? Yeah. We don't, we don't have yeah, Trader Joe's. Here, if I ever get to America, I'll yeah. visit. Um, I suppose in, in Australia, Trader Joe's would be called something like, like what? Farmer Bruce? Farmer Bruce, yeah. Something Maybe like Farmer that. Bob, probably. Is that, is that fair? <laughs> no. Farmer Bob, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do I'm just thinking of the Monty Python Bruce. Uh, the, the, the Bruce yeah. from the, uh, the, the professors from the university, the, the, what is it? The, the uh, University of, yeah. of Wallamaloo. We do something. have, uh, we do have Jim, yeah, yeah. Jim's mowing, Jim's cleaning, Jim's, you know, etc., yeah, yeah. etc. Et so Jim is, although yeah. it's, it's not really a, it's not really a store you can go into, but Jim seems to be, seems to be the one. But anyway, today yeah. I'm drinking. What am I drinking? I got some rum, uh, smoked rum, which was imported from Trinidad, apparently. Uh, smoked rum, apparently. Nice. Stolen. It's called stolen smoked rum. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's quite good. Uh, I'm going to have to yeah, try that. Yeah, I assume it, it. It's going to be, you know, available there as well. Uh, I don't know, but I assume it would be. Um, and it's quite nice. So uh, something a bit, pardon me, a bit different this week. We'll get to we'll get to hear your your actual your your host yeah. having fun. Yes, I think this is the first time I've had an actual drink doing a podcast because usually for me uh, the podcast is is in the middle of the day, so I tend not to drink so much. But it's it's sort of afternoon here, so I feel like. And where I am, we've had a snap, a snap uh, lockdown for about five days, so now everyone's in the house again. <clears throat> oh, really? Why, why, why is that? Uh, if well, you don't mind because me the Delta variant, which is this very tran- transmissible, you know, 
variant or whatever. It's, got, it's getting bad in Sydney. Um, only a fraction of the population is vaccinated. I don't know if here. The, it's complicated as to why the vaccination rollout here hasn't worked very well. Um, but part of it is that the um, the major health... Uh, um, I can't remember what they call it. The major, like the pharmaceutical government agency that... that um, you know, that that uh, okays the drugs. Part of that was that they sort of, they were very uncertain about the AstraZeneca stuff and they were like, well, you know, we don't recommend this for people under 50. And so for a long time there, um, most people were just not getting vaccinated because we didn't have enough Pfizer. And now the government sort of said, well, you, you know, you, you can... Um, you can go and get vaccinated if you want. Um, so, you know, there's just a lot of confusion. You know, the, the risk from the blood clotting thing seems to be very minor. So, I don't know, I think they've, it seems like yeah. they've just overblown that risk, but people are worried about it. And I think, you know, and it's also kind of difficult to get the vaccine in some respects. Um, it still remains kind of kind of hard to, to do. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's just a... Hmm. so. Long story short, it means that that variant seems to be spreading in Sydney, and now people came from there to here, and some removalist or something, <laughs> and um, and that started spreading in a football match, an AFL, Australian Rules Football, when you know there was thousands of people in a stadium. So of course this is a big problem, and so now we're having a snap lockdown five days, um, and I'm just in the house, and uh, you know. Yeah, not doing much else. <laughs> you know, I always knew that Australian rules football was going to ruin the well, world, yeah. and I yeah, just exactly. didn't know how. Well, but here we yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, it, it's um, it's not my favorite sport. Uh, I like American rules football, but if you don't wear any protective gear at all, yeah. <laughs> so it's um, you know, it's quite a it's it's not my favorite. But where I am, the states are the biggest kind of sport, so um, you know, it's very popular here, um, as opposed to rugby or, hmm. or soccer or something else. But, Oh, interesting. Yeah, so so a lot of people go to see the games, and they'd open that back up again, and because we're in the middle of the premier season or whatever, it just it just meant that people are now worried that that's going to spread a lot here as well, and so they did what they've yeah. been doing, and this is the fifth lockdown I think we've had. It's a short one, but we just really need to get more vac- more vaccines and and probably more Pfizer's because yeah. now people are sort of the well has been uh, <laughs> sort of well and truly poisoned by government. Uh, government advice, really, that that um, you know seems to change fairly regularly. So yeah. I don't know what you guys did really well, but somehow that worked. And... Well, not well <laughs> enough, clearly, because I mean, I think it seems like we we got to we got to I don't, I don't know the numbers here, but we got to about fifty sixty percent, mm-hmm. and it seems to have stalled out well, because you know it seems to be that we've gotten to a point where everyone in America who yeah, wants to yeah. get a vaccine. Got a vaccine. The problem here is mm. that not many people want well, to get vaccinated. I think vaccine. we're only at about ten percent. So um, you know, oh, we're yeah. a lot. We're so, well behind. So it's different problems, you know. I, I wish we could maybe you know meld the world together. That yeah, we can have yeah. the sort of uh, the capitalistic efficiency mm, of America mm, mm. Um, with the with the common sense of everywhere else in the world. Well, yep. yep. So I don't know what what Britain did. You know, they've been doing really well as well. So. I'm not sure why the government yeah. here didn't look to them, um, because we've been manufacturing the AstraZeneca one, but you know there's plenty of it. But uh, it's just that you know people are sort of put off getting it because they think they're all going to die of blood clots, which is you know it's just very unlikely. Now that we know that Ridiculous. what the, what that situation is, it's unlikely. Even if you have that issue, you know, and you know the symptoms, you're not going to die of it. So 
anyway, and people yeah. don't seem to realize that uh, that having even one, even even the first shot will sort of help you, will immunize you to some extent from yeah. from the worst effects of the virus, even if you get it after one shot. So um, people don't don't understand yeah. the, sort of well, a sliding scale of risk. You know that they're like, well, you know, if I if I get one shot, it won't do anything, so I'll just wait. And it's like, well, no, no it will still do something, right? <laughs> but anyway, whatever. <laughs> I think if we've learned anything over the last year is that humans do not know how to um, how to do risk yeah, calculus no, um, very well. So I'm still trying to organize that for myself. But yeah. yeah, it's ugh, difficult. Yeah, I'll I'll report back to you about how how it goes here with the with the variants and everything because we, we don't really yeah. know how yeah how it's going to go you know between the vaccine yeah. and the variants and and yet you know I just have made the decision that. Um, I'm going to live like, I'm going to try to as much as I can to live my life like normal, like pre COVID, you know, or post COVID. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I just, at a certain point, you just have to, because everything yeah, is yeah, open yeah. right now by, 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 you know, yeah, like yeah. legally, at yeah. least where I live. Um, so if you want to, you can sort of pretend like mm-hmm. this thing doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Um, and I'm fully vaccinated. So, um, I just kind of, kind of have made the choice yeah. that. I'm just gonna um, I'm just gonna go for it. I'm gonna do you know all the all the all the work that's offered to me. Sure. I'm gonna take you know regardless if it's if it's in a con you know if it's in a crowded yeah. bar. You can always. I'm just gonna. You can always I'm just gonna practice, do it. You know, um, personal uh, risk management like wearing a mask and all of that inside. Yeah. Oh. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna live my life. I mean, and, it's more um, or less what we're doing. You know, if it, if it comes out, it's in, just we now have this five yeah. days. So um, other, I mean, before that, everything's yeah. open. Obviously, they're going to football games, stuff like that. But uh, um, so uh, yeah. you know, it shouldn't be too disruptive, hopefully. But uh, you know, we'll see. <laughs> I, I I do wish in America that they would that they would institute something like everything is open if you can present a proof of vaccination. But you know, of course, that would. That, had a, had a yeah, fact. it seems to be working really well. Um, yeah, but that would just break Americans' yeah. brains. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, I don't think they could handle that. So here we are. But uh, so yeah, you know, if if I get the places, you know, um, where where I think, you know, if I was going to get the Delta variant anywhere, I'm getting it here. <laughs> yeah. So 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 I'll let you know if I if sure. I end up with it. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, sorry about that long coronavirus digression, anyone, but that's <laughs> just interesting. Uh, now, before we go on, those who listened to the last episode, which was interview uh, with Dawn Walls Thuma, who has written, you know, a few papers on Tolkien, various Tolkien topics, uh, will notice that the music, the start of the program has changed. So, Shrita, can you? This is your own recording. Um, so, can you tell, tell us a, a little bit about? About that, I think it was beautiful and works really well for this podcast. So, first of all, what is it? And uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, anything else you'd like to say about it? Because I'm musically illiterate, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure that's not true. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you. That's 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 really nice. Um, it's it's just um, it's from the the partita for for solo flute by by Johann Sebastian mm-hmm. Bach, um, who's a a 17th and 18th and 18th century German Baroque composer. Um, I'm sure probably most people who are listening will be familiar with at least some things that, that yeah. Bach wrote. Um, and, um, you know, the, we flutists are very lucky to, to have something that's actually, um, written for mm-hmm. us by him. 
Um, we have a bunch of sonatas for flute and piano or harpsichord or whatever. And also this, this solo piece, um, which I think is, is, um, it's kind of similar to the cello suites and the violin partitas and, and sonatas. So it's, it's one of those, yeah. you know, big solo things. And, um, yeah. And, and this is the, the fourth movement, which is a, a, a bourree, which is just a, a sort of little <laughs> dance that, that ends the, mm. the partita. Um, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a peasant's dance, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not highly <laughs> academic, um, though it, it has some, it has some academic elements and it's not, um, it's not mm. terribly, it's not terribly, um, um, sort of courtly. It's not very, um, high class. It's very like the, the motion is very downward. It's like a, you know, I, it, when I play it, I kind of imagine someone, um, sort of digging a grave or something like very you know mm. the, 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 there's a rhythm to it but it's it's downwards and it's sort of going into the earth um and um and i i don't know i just i really i really like it um and it's, it's a dance but it's it's kind of a stately dance it's it's, it's mm. a bit slower i, I like to think um, that reflects our so yeah our um you know our vision for this podcast which is you know stately and not too academic but <laughs> um I don't know if it's very peasant-like, but yeah. Um, At the very least, it's you know, it's it's uh, it's a bit morbid. It's it's a bit downward-looking. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's uh, you know, there the, the, it's not that there's it's not that it's just completely lacrimose, but but yeah. there is um you know, if there's any kind of levity, it's a, it's a sort of downward yeah, levity. That, that describes my personality really well. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so that's probably. <laughs> Exactly. Down with liberty. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel the same. I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, I really liked it, and um, you know, yeah. uh, I think it, you know, it, it's a lovely sort of slow and um, about to say mournful, but not really mournful, like you say, introduction to the to the podcast. So hopefully that will we'll, we'll keep using that going forward, and um, yeah, we'll see see how that how that goes down. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, well, thank you for for sending me that. Good. No, of course, and no. apart from that, in terms of housekeeping, there's not much else. There's still very little news about the Amazon show. Although, of course, there is the news about this anime. Now, we haven't talked about this. Have you heard about this? This anime, Rohirrim anime that they're doing? No. Okay. No, I missed All this. Right. This is a this is a um, this is a real time thing, people. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, while I'm looking this up, so I can send it to you. Do you like anime <laughs> in general? Um, I don't dislike it, but I just I don't spend a lot of my life involved with okay. it. Um, I, I don't know if this counts as anime, but I remember spending mm. a lot of my youth watching the um, that the cartoon show um, um, Jackie Chan Adventures. I, I know people who probably like anime will say this is not anime, <laughs> but um, I, I, I I love that show. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've not yeah I've not seen that, so I don't know. But now I'm just going to. Uh, paste this because I should have I should have uh, I forgot to actually tell you about this before but <laughs> but so in short how do I paste that there we go in short it's been reported that there's apparently going to be an anime produced by Warner Brothers which will be dealing with another sort of trying to send it but is this anything like the um the wasn't there a little um, animated series created of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit? Yeah, there, there was uh, in the seventies, I think. That was like the first, the yeah, first yeah. one. But um, <laughs> but uh, oh, there we go. Hopefully, you can access that. But oh, there you um, go. I see a link here. 
this is going to be dealing with a, an episode of history uh, that will be familiar to Lord of the Rings fans looking at <laughs> looking at uh, Helm Hammerhand, so called this sort of legendary, semi-legendary king <laughs> <laughs> um, about 250 years before the Lord of the Rings takes place. And it'll be an anime and it'll be directed by... Oh, I see that. The, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's right. Please. I was just going to say it'll be directed by um, Kenji Kamiyama, who apparently is, is quite a well-known anime director. Um, so, you know, I'm interested to see how it, well, how it goes. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, if, if, if he directed Ghost in the Shell, um, I, I like Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess that's... I don't know what anime is exactly, but if that's anime, mm-hmm. then then I like it. Then I like it. So... Um, so interestingly, it's going to yeah, be I'm, I'm going to be uh, a cinema release. So there's no sense that this will be released um, at least initially on some sort of um, HBO Max or anything like that. Apparently, they're going to put it in cinemas. So it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Um, I mean, we do have some uh, some recent animated films which have done quite well, uh, like Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse, which the author mentions in. Uh, the article we're looking at, which is on Hollywood Insider. So, you know, it's possible that this could do quite well, but we'll see, I guess. <laughs> so I just thought I'd mention yeah. that because that's sort of out of left field and, you know, no one was expecting or even, like, actively wishing for this. So not that that's, you know, not that that means th- this won't be interesting. So it's nice to see that, to see something like this happen. Mm. I, I think this is great news. Um, I, I remember saying saying in one of, one of our episodes, I have no idea which one, but I remember saying that if, if the Lord of the Rings is going to, to, to not just survive, but, but, but thrive, it's going to have to be something like yeah, Sherlock Holmes, yeah, where exactly. um, it's just sort of, it's just sort of taken up by everyone and everything in so yeah. many different forms. And not all of them are going to be good, but the fact mm. that it's just mm. this thing that's in, in the sort of consciousness, what, yeah. you know, because the, the, the thing that will be the death of the, I, I, I firmly believe that the thing that will be, that would be, that would have been the death of the Lord of the Rings would be for um, the, the sort of two, two ways that the public mm. engage with it is, is one, one that, you know, hardcore Tolkien fans, you know, read and study everything in, in his oeuvre. And and then the public just sort of has mm. movies um, from the 2000s, and um, and from that, you know, everything like the, the sort of modern conception of fantasy yeah. stems from it, and 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 that's just that's just mm. where we are. Um, I think that that would have been really bad for yeah. Lord of the Rings. I think the way out of the the way out of there is not necessarily for you know a great series to be made or anything like that, but the way out of there is just it's just. Um, it's just sheer, sheer quantity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you, you just want you just want you want to flood the Lord of the Rings sort of um, field of content with just a ton of people <laughs> making a ton of different kinds of crazy things. And, and um, if even one of them is good, then I think that will be the sort of savior of, of the Lord of the Rings. It's, it's kind of like Sherlock, like I said, it's, it's like Sherlock yeah, Holmes. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, I know. think I think the the notion that the Jackson films should stand as a kind of canonical representation of the books is unfortunately something I see a lot. People seem unwilling to give that up, but I think there's you know a lot of space for further adaptation. And obviously, there's stories in the um, in the appendices, um, let alone other places, which I think perhaps lend themselves to anime treatment. I like this story, 
And of course, some of them lend, lend themselves also to, to live action and other kinds of treatment as well. But um, which, which are, of course, we're going to see with the second age material being developed by Amazon right now. So um, hopefully we'll have news about that. Uh, sometime soon in the next few months. That would be nice. Notwithstanding this, uh, notwithstanding that, this is you know some interesting news. So so I guess yeah, yeah, yeah that'll it. be. Uh, there's no yeah, there's no sense like will it come out next year or two years or three years away? But yeah, the next few years I think at least it'll it'll be out. So that'll be interesting. And I imagine if if it's successful, they will perhaps look at other stories in the appendices, as I said, to uh, to develop. So that'll be interesting to see how it performs. Yeah. All right, so yeah, I guess we can move on to our um, actual topic for today. So sorry for those listeners who who who, um, <laughs> who want to get to that. But um, so as I mentioned, yeah, we're looking at the rings of power uh, as a general concept, um, in particular through the lens of these two documents. So Milton Walden's letter at the beginning of the Silmarillion and um, of the rings of power in the Third Age at the uh, end of. of the same volume, of course, End of the Silmarillion. Of course, the rings first appear, um, at least in terms of publication, um, well, in The Hobbit, really, because because we have the, 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 the magic ring. But in The Lord of the Rings, and during the process of writing that, Tolkien develops the idea, uh, the idea is sort of around not only the one ring, of course, but also all the others, which we get in the famous little sort of nine rings for mortal men, etc., that little poem at the beginning of the book. And which is sort of referenced throughout. So, which I believe um, Tolkien calls, I think he somewhere calls it a, a light mm, motif mm, for for the for the little things, which I think is a, a very interesting term to mm, use, mm. Um, because that's a, that's a Wagnerian mm, term mm. to use. It's a musical t- it's mm-hmm. a musical term, um, and um, I, I wish I had I wish I had marked where he he calls it that, but um, the the fact that he he, he references that that poem um, as, as a as a as a sort of um, almost a musical mm. element. Mm. Um, I think says a lot about his conception yep. about um, just the sort of structure of, mm. of the whole mm. the, the whole work. You know, absolutely. Yeah. So at the start of the Lord of the Rings novel, the book, we we of course we have this uh, light motif, as you say, or perhaps this this uh, this little poem, which you know places the, the notion of the rings at the center. And what's interesting about Lord of the Rings is that the story of the rings themselves only um, unfolds slowly um, in the narrative as, as we sort of reach different locales, like, uh, of course, Rivendell, Council of Elrond, but then also um, Lothlorien, which on my last reread, it's, it's really clear to me at least that Lothlorien is kind of the thematic center of the book people keep talking about it people keep referencing it so there's something important about you know about that locale and then what the rings what the rings are doing there so we'll get back to that but of course befitting its status as a kind of novel it's not the same sort of document as for example this letter which sort of outlines Tolkien's whole sort of mythological project as he saw it in 1951 or of the Rings of Power, uh, which dates from a similar period, I think the, the 50s as well, uh, which, which sort of outlines the Lord of the Rings story from the very sort of high perspective of, of a historical chronicler, perhaps, um, talking about the events of the Lord of the Rings from much from much later vantage. And so there we get a sort of more summarised, but in some ways clearer vision of, of what the 
the rings actually do. And so in, in aid of that, I'm just going to read a couple of passages from both documents. So I have HarperCollins edition of the Silmarillion. The first, the first little thing I'm going to read is from Roman numerals, um, page 21, from this letter by Tolkien to Waldman, who uh, was a publisher. He was trying to convince to publish the Silmarillion, and um, he was uh, he was writing this sort of manifesto. And in a moment, we'll we'll also talk about issues of how this letter in particular, but also others of Tolkien's letters, sort of shape our um, view of of the Lord of the Rings and the mythology and our response thereto. So, first of all, I'm going to read this part, and then I'll read the part from the Rings of Power, and then we'll discuss. So again, page 21, Roman numerals um, of the HarperCollins edition. So in the first quote, we see a sort of second fall or at least error of the L. There was nothing wrong, essentially, in their lingering against counsel. <clears throat> Note here, uh, that is, during the Second Age, um, after the events of the, thir- the First Age, lingering in Middle-earth, still sadly uh, within the mortal lands of their old heroic deeds. But they wanted to have their cake without eating it. <laughs> they wanted the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West, that is, Valinor, the, the sort of... Um, uh, the Undying Lands, and yet to remain on the ordinary Earth, where their prestige as the highest people above wild elves, dwarves, and men, was greater than at the bottom of, of um, the hierarchy of Valinor. I want to come back to this. This is a very interesting, somewhat Machiavellian point that he makes. Um, they thus become became obsessed with fading, the mode in which the changes of time were, was perceived by them. They became sad, and their art, shall we say, antiquarian, and their efforts all really a kind of embalming, even though they retained the old motive of their kind, the adornment of earth and the healing of its hurts. We hear of a lingering kingdom in the extreme northwest, uh, more or less in what was left of the old lands of the Silmarillion under Gil-Galad, and of other settlements such as Imladris, uh, Rivendell, near Elrond, and the great one at Eregion in the western feet of the Misty Mountains adjacent to the mines of Moria. There arose friendship between usually hostile folk for the first and only time, and Smithcraft reached its highest development. But many of the elves listened to Sauron. He was still fair in those early times, and his motive, the motive of those elves seemed to go partly together, the healing of the desolate lands. Um, and then I'm going to skip a bit, and then down the page, uh, Roman numerals 22, he goes on to say, The chief power of all the rings alike was the prevention or slowing of decay change viewed as a regrettable thing uh, the prevention of what is desired or loved the, sorry the preservation of what is desired or loved or its semblance this is more or less an elvish motive so I'm going to stop there um, with that that little reading and then I'm just going to read a little bit from of the rings of power page 345 in my edition <clears throat> so he's talking about uh, sorry 344 he's talking about the making of the rings it was in Eregion that the councils of Sauron were most gladly received, for in that land the Noldor desired ever to increase the skill and subtlety of their works. Moreover, they were not at peace uh, in their hearts since they had refused to return to the West. So we have that theme again. And they desired both to stay in Middle-earth, which indeed they loved, and yet to enjoy the bliss of those that had departed. Therefore they hearkened to Sauron, and they learned of him many things, for his knowledge was great. In those days the smiths of Ost in Evil surpassed all that they had contrived before and they took thought and made rings of power but Sauron guided their labours and he was aware of all that they did 
for his desire was to set a bond upon the elves and bring them under his vigilance. So I'll stop there. And of course, there's more where that comes from. So, so we see, well, let's talk, I guess, first about the motives of the elves. So we have this uh, context after, of course, the first age um, where there's been these ruinous wars for those who've read the Silmarillion. And so some of the elves remain in Middle-earth, but things are devastated and sort of remain devastated. So what do we see here uh, in terms of motivations for the elves? Well, it seems to me that there are sort of two motivations. There's the desire to sort of obstruct the sort of passage of time, you know, reality of decay, but also apparently this sort of more selfish desire to remain on the top of the hierarchy, uh, which is interesting and which is less alluded to in the Lord of the Rings itself. So I, I don't know if you have any immediate thoughts about that, Shri. <laughs> Both interesting, somewhat contrasting passages. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that that token really is attuned to to the nature of of um of of power and 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 hierarchical structures and and, and um and who has power and how they and how they keep it and and even kind of the sort of rhetoric and propaganda that they use to hold on to it um that's maybe a, a, a very um uh, uncharacteristically sort of non-textual reading <laughs> Of, of it, but um, you know, I, I tend to sort of stick stick within the text. But when I'm reading these passages, I can't help but um, put in my mind that that this is um that uh, I, I can't sort of take out of my head the 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 sort of um. It, it almost seems like it's it's a it's, it's a kind of propaganda that's inherent in in the Rings of Power. That's interesting. Um, is that a crazy um, thing to I say? I guess. What, what do you mean by that? Like, can you? Expand on that a bit. Yeah. So, so um, you know, I have I have um, marked <clears throat> somewhere here. Um, it was it was in the passage right before right, right before um, where, where you just oh, read right. from, actually, um, where he says, um, "Alas, uh, sorry, alas <clears throat> for the weakness of the great, for a mighty king is Gilgalad, and, and and wise in all lore is Master Elrond, and yet they will not aid me in my labors. Can it be that they do not desire to see?" other lands become as visible mm. as their own but but wherefore should middle earth remain forever desolate and dark whereas the elves could not make it as fair as Eresia, may even as valinor and since you have not returned thither as you might i perceive that you love this middle earth mm. as i do as do <laughs> i sorry um is, is it not then uh, our, our task to labor together for its enrichment and for the for the raising of all the elven kindreds that wander here untaught to the height of uh, that, that the power and knowledge was which those have who are beyond the sea? I'm sorry, I'm not as good at, at, at reading out loud as, as no, Ben no. is. Um, it's an odd I, syntax. I, I'm, I'm really bad at reading out loud. Sorry, an odd syntax for what we're used to. Compared to what we're used to, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's Anatar talking. Yeah, I, I, I've been really bad at reading out loud since I was in school. Even I, I remember, oh. you know, horrific oh. scenes of um, of trying to read read um, you know, like John Steinbeck out loud oh, in English class, and I can't I can't even do that. You know, I have no problem mm. speaking, but but reading out loud, I have no I have no problem speaking, and I have no problem reading, but you know, reading out loud for some <laughs> reason just breaks my brain. But um. But I, I have um, written in the side of that, um, make Middle Earth great again. <laughs> yes. Um, but but there, there seems to be a little bit of a a, um, a, a grievance and a, a little bit of a, um, a sort of um, 
I don't know. You, you said yes. Um, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, that's uh, Anatar talking. So that's his kind of that's his um, pitch, as it were, to the elves um, to sort of create these rings. These particular, um, well, in general, actually, the, the rings in general. So from the start, they're really motivated then by um, this desire to heal the world. But also, as Tolkien suggests in the letter, perhaps by a desire um, to maintain their um, suzerainty and sort of high position uh, in in Middle Earth, where you know, in comparison to Valinor, you know, they would be sort of the the uh, the lowest rung um, because you know you've got the gods essentially <laughs> living there as well. So. Um, so you can sort of that that's a somewhat more Machiavellian desire, as I said, or somewhat more sort of I don't know realpolitik kind of desire, um, and one that's not so alluded to in the Lord of the Rings, but it certainly is one that I, I think is there. And in some of Tolkien's other writings in Unfinished Tales, especially in relation to Galadriel, for example, we can see that being developed, that idea. And and so I think we have this sort of complex. Yeah, picture of motivations that that generates the creation of the one rings and you could even sort of consider them a kind of technology um obviously we don't <laughs> being a, a fantasy novel like this we don't have any sense of like how they work in a mechanical sense but they are a kind of technology of preservation as i sort of as i think about it and again in the lord of the rings book itself that's sort of not as deeply developed um an idea because uh, we're sort of only tangentially aware of the effects of that power in, for example, Lothlorien, which I want to bring up a bit, but um, in, a, in a more general sense, yeah, it, it seems like those are at least comprehensible motives, right? Um, so you can see why perhaps the elves were interested in, or at least some of the elves were interested in Sauron's assistance. <laughs> of course, they didn't know it was him, but, but um, they soon found out, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think um, it's, it's interesting how, how it, it seems like it, it it seems like you know my my like before reading these uh, my my understanding was that was that token was kind of um, all in on on the preservation mm-hmm. thing you know that that was the that was the that was the good oh, thing I see. you know mm-hmm. that that he that he was um, ad- advocating for um, and then here I am reading reading this letter to 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 Waldman and and then his um of the rings of power and and all of a sudden it seems like he has a much more um complicated mm. understanding of of politics than than I <laughs> than I than I um took him to have um he doesn't seem uh, he doesn't seem to be all that all, all that sold on it I mean in, in a very practical way mm. um you know if you didn't read anything but of the rings of power in the third mm-hmm. age um the elves kind of come off as sympathetic backgrounds. <laughs> You know, it's, it's not it's not necessarily that he um, he lampoons them or, or says that they're just evil, but but you know he, he gives them a motive, but the, but the motive is not terribly convincing. Hmm. Is that wrong? Oh, I don't think it's wrong, but yeah, maybe maybe you're right that the motive of, as I say, this sort of more cynical motive of um, wanting to stay on the the top of the food chain, as it were, is is also you know, introduces an interesting um, an interesting little. Uh, complication. No doubt, both motives are sort of. Yeah, you know, I think I think the point is that both motives are kind of intertwined. Um, because 
in wanting to preserve Middle Earth in some sort of sense. And I think we see the outcome of that in Lothlorien, right? What does that mean? It means this beautiful place, but static, uh, sort of lifeless almost. Well, lifeless in the sense that there's no, never renewal, right? There's only this sort of constant, mm. there's only stasis, as beautiful as that might be, but nothing changes, nothing shifts, nothing grows or withers. Um, and maybe that is a good thing. Um, Tolkien, as you say, in the letter seems to have a more um, complicated sense of why that might not be an entirely good motive, let's say. And obviously the fact that Sauron is making that plea or making that argument to them suggests that <laughs> there is something um, sinister in it. Um, and, you know, a side note, this is a theme I hope is explored, obviously, in, in detail in the show coming up, um, because I think it's very interesting. And, of course, in, in the Lord of the Rings book itself, gimmick is that the One Ring is, is in some sense, attached to the, the three elven rings, and therefore, when it is destroyed, the elven realms will also... Uh, um, oh, that's the wine. <laughs> no, that's oh, Sorry. I didn't realize that would pick up. No, it's great. Uh, I'm going to get some more, more from this. Um, yeah, yeah. The gimmick is, or, the, or the, the, the problem is that the elven realms that are sort of maintained in their sort of bliss, blissful stasis by these rings uh, will also sort of, will no longer be main, be thusly maintained because because the, the power of the, the three rings is wedded in some sense to the power of the one. And this is, of course, the whole moral challenge for Galadriel when she sees the One Ring, because if she claims it, she can not only save Lothlorien, but also sort of turn the whole world into this place. Of course, she eventually she eventually resists that temptation, but you can see the seeds of that developing here um, as she... Uh, well, of course, she, she apparently resists Anatar, this, this embodiment of Sauron at, at this time, but, um, you know, she comes... She comes at least to um, take one of the rings and, and then use it. Um, so she 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 clearly has some sympathy with the motive, if not um, if not Anatar himself. Um, so I don't know. It's it's a complicated it's a complicated sort of knot of motivations. But you know, I think it becomes clearer once again if we think about the rings as a kind of technology as opposed to sort of just a sort of a, a vague magic. If we think about it like that, I think we can start to see why they might be of interest to these immortal beings who in the story, you know, are not only used to sort of being at the top of the food chain, as I said, but also, um, but also sort of live in this world that is otherwise, um, decaying around them sort of constant and uh, decaying and then growing again in a sort of constant cycle. And, um, there may be some interest in arresting that. So I find that part of the story kind of interesting, um, and thought provoking, um, because I, you know, I, th I think it it has a lot to say about, in a sort of indirect sense, I suppose, about our own experience of time and um, and decay and, and loss and things like that. But we can get into that. <laughs> yeah, I I guess it, it must just be my own biases, but um, I feel very much. Pro decay. <laughs> I feel very much um, like wh whenever anyone says anything about anything about sort of you know cultural or, or civilizational decay, I, I kind of think you know we're on the right path here. Um, mm. So I, I was kind of getting the same vibe when I was reading 
I, I, I may have completely misinterpreted mm. these texts because I was reading those with my, with that, you know, huge bias that I have. But, um, to me, to me, decay is a sign that, um, decay to me is a sign of upward mobility for people who were previously not upwardly mobile. Um, that's, that's maybe, a, that's maybe too much of a, you're, you're in favor yeah. of, uh, what do they call it? Um, Capitalism and, uh, uh, you know, what do they call it? Um, oh, God, what's the phrase? Neoliberalism. Like that's, that's something. <laughs> well, yeah, like uh, creative destruction. That's what I'm trying to think of. You're in favor of creative destruction. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. On the, on the whole, I would say I am, yeah. Though, though I have, you know, sis- <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. That that's right. me, you know. But uh, if 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 it, if it means that that uh, that you know more working people can get houses and medicine, and and you know move up in the world. Welcome to it seems the U.S. Me. politics edition of Reading Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. I know. But no, I mean, it, no. I mean, you, you bring up an interesting. M- meanwhile, you're living in an advanced country where where people actually, well, um, where people actually. As I said, we don't have, we don't can, have the can, vaccines under control, so we haven't done everything. I don't know what's, what's going on there, but <laughs> yeah, that's true. yeah, no, but but no, I mean, it's it's a it's it's valuable to think about the more broader question of, of um, I mean, on the one hand, there's Tolkien's own view of this, which perhaps if we're going to read that letter, you know, at least from 1951, is is that there's a sort of a yeah. The, in some sense, as he calls it, it's a fall, right? This this desire to to hold back change and to sort of create this static, changeless, timeless realm in which things sort of just maintain themselves in a sort of magical or technological way. Um, you could even make the one could even make the claim, I think, that the whole sustainability movement, which sort of comes out of environmentalism, is is exactly that kind of motive. It's to arrest development it's to arrest change it's to sort of maintain a kind of stasis in the perhaps mistaken idea that nature itself functions in in a kind of static way without Mm. human intervention that without human intervention it sort of just has a kind of static uh, sort of uh, ontology if you you like i think that's sort of wrong yeah um, in that in that way and of course funnily enough tolkien is known for being an environmentalist or at least having some sort of environmental tendencies but I think it's interesting to think about his depiction of of, of, um, of different environments, and it's not always sort of just well, you know, the, the environment without human intervention is, is sort of this placid and, and good thing. And in fact, it's often the other way around. Um, the Shire is only homelike and, and pretty and sort of livable because it's been tamed by, you know, these fairly benign creatures, the hobbits, of course. But you know, it's still nonetheless a managed landscape, as is, of course, Lothlorien. Yeah. Lothlorien is garden, uh, which is managed by yeah. this magic or technology of the rings, and something that's not given a sort of environment that doesn't have that, if you like, that that human or that humanoid <laughs> management, if, if you want to think about it like that, is, is like something like Fangorn of the Old Forest. And often that, so nature in its own, you know, in, in, in its own uh, realm, if you like, is often depicted by Tolkien as a kind of, um, you know, a much less uh, friendly place in, in some sense. And he even yeah. gives, obviously, sentience to some of his his natural environments, like the old forest, um, and that's very... We see that there's a kind of hostile will there. So it's not always sim- the case that, you know, nature is simply um, is, is simply the static place. Um, indeed, you know, that that's what 
that, that's what motivates the alt in the first place. They, they want to sort of do something to it that seems unnatural. Um, I don't know. I think if you want to think about that in, in a wider sense, I think <laughs> yeah, something like the sustainability movement has that kind of philosophical, philosophical position at its core, even if it's not articulated explicitly, it's this sense that, well, left to its own devices, nature is this this sort of flat static entity that, that sort of takes care of itself. It doesn't require human intervention. But yeah, I think, well, my sense is that that wouldn't be Tolkien's perspective. No, I, I agree 100%. I think I, I've always said that um, that we're not going to... Um, we're not going to preserve our way out of the the climate crisis. We're going to, we're going to innovate our way out of the climate crisis. Mm. Um, And and I think I, I mean, I I can't say for sure, obviously, but I, but I think Tolkien would agree. um, I think most reasonable people would, I think actually the, the the sort of caricature of, of the, of the um, elves is is exactly the, the, the kind of person who, who thinks that we are going to sort of preserve our way mm. um, out of this thing and, 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 and sort of subscribes to, to well, it's um, interesting. A, a whole number of, a whole number of natural fallacies, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, th- thinking that, thinking that, um, that, that nature is kind to us and, mm. and it's not. Um, the, the fact is that the fact is that nature is out to get us, but, um, we'll, yeah. but unfortunately we do need it to survive. Yeah. So you know we have to find some way to work with it, and and I think um, I think you know again like um, fiction has a way of of um, having mm. people sort of make a a, a heuristic mm. that that is so right um, without without necessarily having mm. to articulate a sort of scientific viewpoint mm. behind it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, um, and I think this is one yeah, of those heuristics in the Lord of the Rings book itself. Um, uh, you know, when the company is crossing the mountain. In, um, or trying to cross the mountain in the Fellowship of the Ring, the mountain of Caratheras, one of the mountains of Moria, of course. Um, readers will remember that and this is not something that translated into the film, or that was translated into the film. Readers will remember that Tolkien suggests fairly strongly that it's the mountain itself that is, in some sense, aware of their presence and, in some sense, desirous that they should, you know, that, 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 that they should um, leave. Um, that it's, they are somehow hurting the mountain by being there. Gimli, yeah. the dwarf, sort Very of, good point. you know, sort of says, um, uh, you know, oh, he's the mountain. You know, has long sort of had this. Um, th- there's long been a sense that the mountain has a kind of ill will towards creatures who go on two feet. And um, and then <laughs> then we reach Lothlorien, right um, after the Moria sequence, of course. Again, it, it, it's this managed landscape. It, it's only it's only friendly to um, to the mortals and the well and, and the people who live in it because it's sort of managed by this magical. Um, this magical, this technology of the rings, which kind of again, sort of, it, in a sense, I guess it's it's agriculture. It's um, it's all of those sorts of technologies taken to an extreme perfection in in in, in the art form. It's interesting that that people often you know read the Lord of the Rings and they often ask, oh, where do the elves get food? You know, because they're like, oh, they don't seem to they don't seem to farm or anything. And I think that's deliberate on Tolkien's part. Um, you know. Thinking about the economy of Lothlorien, for example, I think misses the point. Um, the, the point is that the, the technology of the ring sort of, you know, and, and again, the, the mechanics of this are not spelled out, nor, nor should they be, but there's some sense in which it is that power from whence, uh, you know, all the bounty flows, right? So presumably there are gardens, horticulture or something, 
but but it's elevated um, to sort of art form by this magic or this technology. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the question is whether or not that is, as it were, sustainable, whether or not that is, um, <laughs> whether or not that kind of, um, yeah, the, that, that technology or that magic is, is, is actually in accordance with sort of how the world is. And, um, yeah, so, so I don't, I don't know where I'm going with that, but, but I think, um, there's so much sort of symbolic meaning in, in the rings and, and sort of what they are doing there, especially in Lothlorien as we see it in the Lord of the Rings, that invites these questions about our own relationship with, with the environment. And it's it's interesting, again, um, I was just thinking as you were talking before, if you listen to some of the commentaries on the, um, the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings films, and they come to thinking about or when, when they come to talking about the elves and, you know, designing Rivendell and uh, Lothlorien and Sidebar, I think that was that's actually something they didn't get right in the, the, the Fellowship of the Ring. I think they misunderstood Lothlorien. But they, you know, they talk about all oh, the elves. Are they... Why is that? Um, well, I'll get back to that. Sorry. <laughs> they, they, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah. they often talk about the elves as these, um, oh, they're, they're in tune with nature and they just sort of live, na- you know, with nature. Again, I think that misunderstands it. They're, they're sort of, they're just as domineering over nature as, say, Sauron is, but, you know, obviously in a more benign way, but. It's still a sort of controlling technology, or as Tolkien might call it, machine. It's obviously it doesn't produce ash heaps and slag and death and destruction necessarily, but it's also a technology of, of control. So I just wanted to mention that. But to Lothlorien in the movies, I mean, I think I think there's a sort of art design failure in that. Well, not so much an art design failure. I think that there's perhaps a failure in the cumulative effect of like the, the lighting and the art design and the mood and the it's this very, they tried to create this ethereal place, but I don't think it's ethereal. I think it's just, as I said, um, in the book, one imagines this sort of um, very yellow, very golden sort of place. In the movies, they sort of turn it into a um, dim, I don't know, almost one, one, can ima- one could imagine sort of being being there sort of in a, I don't know, in a, in a much more frightening place than, than really it's depicted in the books. It needs to be inviting. It should be, there should be something of the sort of um, I don't know, the summer of childhood about it, <laughs> but but I feel like in the in the films they they missed that. Um, I don't think they quite understood it. But anyway, sorry, long rant. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. We're drinking rum. Yeah, well. <laughs> I want to think about, and we've been talking about this a little bit already, or I've been monologuing about it. So sorry about that. <laughs> you know, in a wider theoretical <laughs> sense, again. What the rings present or suggest about the efficacy of technology, and I've mentioned a few times this idea of taking the rings as technology. And I think I think one of the f- people to talk about this in depth, or at least to suggest it as an idea, is scholar Gergay Naj, who, of course, I have interviewed on this podcast. So go back and listen to that. But he suggests that um, the rings might be considered technologies, and considering that Tolkien uses this notion of the machine in that Milton Waldman letter. You know, as as a kind of metaphor for domineering power, and I've just said that, you know, in some sense the elves, although obviously not as destructive as Sauron, are also wielding power over the natural world in their attempt to just sort of make it make it static, make it undying in a sense. And I also suggested there then that there may be some parallel in the environmental movement and its sort of obsession with the notion of sustainability. So going on that thread, taking that thread, you know. What do the rings then, I guess, suggest, or 
how might they be applicable to thinking about perhaps the efficacy of technology in our own world? Is technology best understood as something that is preservate, pre- preservative in, 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 in sort of um, application or is it something that should change and renew and transform, um, which I think is how it's usually understood. So it's interesting to think about technology as something that kind of that, that kind of maintains the status quo, if you like, or at least builds a new status quo. That, But I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you say something before I go on. <laughs> No, I, I think I, I think that's a really really interesting point that that I didn't really consider. Um, so uh, as I was reading this, I, I was thinking of um, the the passage in in the Bible that talks about the the um, the tree of knowledge, both good and evil, right? Um, of course, that's that's. Um, that must be, you know, very much often <laughs> talked about in, in this sense. But, um, but you know, it, it comes from it comes from the same place. It's, it's not it's not multiple trees of knowledge, you know, um, both good and evil. It, it is the same tree of knowledge, and that knowledge is is both good and mm-hmm. evil. Um, and, and and I kind of think that's 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 how technology is, and and that's clearly how how tokenism envisioning this technology and and yeah i i think it's it's an innovative um riff <laughs> on on the sort of role of technology in 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 myth um to have Ooh. technology be a preservative thing sorry my <laughs> phone are. died in there for me <laughs> no it's all good i didn't realize it <laughs> no it's all good yeah 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 i i was just saying i, I think it's quite it's quite an um an innovative step for him to to i think um to 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 take the the role of technology as um as um as something that is a preservative mm. power you know that 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 it, it goes to it goes to um a, a sort of literary defense of 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 his work mm. um that he he makes more in in the um the Waldman writer mm. Right. Um, he, he he sort of defends his work more on a um, a literary basis, and um, huh. I think like he like for example he you know he 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 says something like um, I, I can't find mm. it right away but but he he says something like um, uh, he that he wanted to write. Um, a, a kind of uh, myth and, and, and legend, and, and the the Arthurian ones were, were not yeah. good enough because because they they had a, a sort of explicitly Christian yeah. event, um, and and he he doesn't want to do that, which which I found extremely interesting, you know, mm. to 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 read that was was um, eye opening mm. because um, that to me shuts down everyone who. Who wants to sort of obsessively um, relate him to to the to the Catholic mm. myth? I'll just read that bit because it's you know, on page um, Roman numerals eleven yeah. um, in my book. But he says, of course, there was and is all the Arthurian world, but powerful as it is, it is imperfect, <coughs> imperfectly naturalized, associated with the soil of Britain, but not with English. It does not replace what I felt to be missing. For one thing, its fairy is too lavish, too fantastical, incoherent, and repetitive. For another and more important thing, it has evolved in an explicitly contained Christian religion. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what a lot of people would say to that as well, he's talking about explicit, you know, his, his work is more sort of symbolic. It, it takes on symbolic meaning from a Christian perspective. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. That that can be argued <laughs> ad nauseum, I guess. But um, certainly that that's yeah something in that. But yeah, I guess it could be. But um, to to me, that sounds like like um, he's trying to do something more and more literary. You know, what, whether it has um, whether it has um, Catholic elements or yes. not, you know, yeah. it might. But um, to to the extent that it does, it it has um, it has things in common with Catholicism. He's not explicitly trying to trying to sort of retell the Catholic story yeah. via his own story, which no. I think a lot of people try to say that he I is. I agree. Um, yeah. So. So, you know, maybe it does have things in common with Catholicism, but Catholicism has a lot of things in common with a lot of different ethics. Yes. So, you know, that's not, that's not a lot to say. That's not, that's not a lot that it has going for it. So I think that was fairly eye opening and, um, to, to, to have it in his own words to, to, to basically, um, make a case for the Lord of the Rings as not allegory, but yes, literature. Yeah. I thought is um, is uh, is really nice to have in print, and I'm surprised that I, I, I didn't read it before I did this mm. podcast. But um, but you know, but that that's exactly what he does. He he, he says you know he, he essentially says this this isn't um, this isn't allegory or Christian mm. metaphor or anything. This is it's, it's essentially just mm. literature. Um, I, I forget why I brought that up in the first in the first one, but I swear it had a connection to what you said earlier, but I don't remember. <laughs> well, I guess I guess the whole um, yeah, the, the sort of interesting take on technology um, that that is sort of uh, that was it. yeah. So I don't know if, you, if if what you were thinking there, but um, uh, yeah, I mean for Christian for in, in Christian Genesis at least. There's the idea that you know people just have dominion over the world and or over nature and um, you know at the beginning of the Silmarillion I think in the chapter of um, of beginning of days there's something similar is, is kind of said but I think in the in the in the sort of working out of the mythology um, especially again in the Lord of the Rings you know I think I think it's it's a more nuanced kind of perspective than that it's not simply the case that to sort of have dominion over nature is is, is automatically good or automatically without without difficult difficulty or with, without morally dubious connotations or aspects which we see in Lord of the Rings itself obviously perhaps obviously a, a big theme in in that book <laughs> I would say so I think you know the, the Christian idea of dominion over nature um, Tolkien's fiction is not simply an allegorical or certainly a restatement of that notion and of course many christians today want to complexify that i'm going to be interviewing a uh he's like a minister um tom emmanuel i think who's someone on twitter again who says lots of interesting things about talking sort of progressive church somewhere in the united states so um I'm going to be interviewing him about some things relating to Tolkien soon, so I'm going to ask him about that. But certainly, the traditional Christian reading seems to be that dominionism, you know, is, is sort of the the position of, that the church takes in relation to. I'm pretty sure that's still the Catholic position, the position in relation to human beings um, and nature. But I think it's interesting uh, that Tolkien, mm-hmm. at least, especially in the Lord of the Rings, complexifies that a lot, and precisely part through through the avenue of the rings of power which as i said nothing if not sort of technology that somehow somehow or other exercise kind of dominion over nature so there, there's and again that that's treated as a kind of dubious 
use of power, <laughs> I guess. So um, this may be where you want mm. to go next, but um, let me start this off with a, with a mm-hmm. question. So um, it's, re- it's revealed... Again, I, I'm not a scholar, so I, I don't know if it's revealed anywhere else. But as far as I know, it's revealed only in the um, in that in that thing, the the of, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, that Gandalf is um, is a is um, in control of the that the the, the, the of, of one of the Elven yeah, Rings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what does he deal with that? That's a good question. Um... So originally, I think the rings go to Galadriel. So back in the Third Age, Sauron makes war upon the elves um, to recover, especially these three rings, which are the most powerful ones, the three elven rings. Um, but they are dispersed before he can get the, get his hands on them. And I, I think, so one goes to Galadriel, one goes to Gil-Galad. Um, and which finds its way to Elrond. Which finds its way to Elrond. And then one, I think, goes to yeah. Curdan, who's this sort of elvish figure who's... Um, he's around, you know, since the First Age. He sort of builds ships. <laughs> um, and he's the shipbuilder. Right? But he's one of these constant characters throughout the First, Second, Third Age. Um, but then I think when Gandalf arrives in Middle-earth, he's gives... Uh, Curdan gives Gandalf the ring that he has. And so Gandalf uses this ring and, and sort of, you know, sort of uses it to instill, again, it's a little vague, but uses it to instill hope and, and, and things in in people that he, he meets. Um, it's a nice idea. I don't know if it's really developed um, all that strongly um, because seems like it's really Gandalf's personality and his his own sort of force of will that um, that's really effective when it comes to um, sort of instilling hope and in, in, in people. But I guess you can think of that ring as kind of an amplifier, I guess, of his own innate powers. Um, but um, you know, I think I think for the purpose of the story, what's interesting about the rings, or, or the, the most interesting rings, are of course those those kept by Elrond and Galadriel, which sort of, as we've been talking about, enhance their respective realms in, in some ways and, and sort of maintain them against the forces of decay. So, yeah, the, the ring that Gandalf eventually has is, yeah, again, he's the keeper of it, so it's sort of a bit ambiguous, though, as to how he actually uses it. Yeah. Do, do you have any sense of, of when he has it? Uh, in the that's time? a good question. I think... Um, I think when he arrived in Middle-earth in about the year 1000 of the Third Age, Curdan gives it to him. Um, so okay. he's had it for like 2,000 years at this point. <laughs> um, at the point of the Lord of the yeah. Rings, yeah. Um, so um, I wonder if he's got it like... So <laughs> he's got it adjusted during that time, you know. <laughs> he had to go to jewels. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's got a <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah. yeah. But um, it, it, in in some ways, that sort of um, it sort of strengthens my my point, hmm. which is that that I, I I mean, so there's this whole thing about um how how Galadriel wanted um, Mithrandir to be the the sort of 
the leader of the council or something, yeah. right? And, and and he chose not to do so, um, because he felt himself inadequate to to deal with it. I I, I could be wrong here. Yeah, I haven't read this um, in a while. In, 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 so. <laughs> I think there's a sense that. But um, let me tell you, I've killed a lot of brain cells uh, since then. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a sense. That, but yeah, what um, he uh, that he wants to maintain his sort of um, you know that that would distract him from what he sees as his mission, which which is sort of giving hope to the sort of people like the hobbits, the the giving hope and, and, mm. and counsel to people like the hobbits and the Rohirrim, and you know he travels, he doesn't sort of stay in one place, right? He's sort of an itinerant itinerant wizard, so the. The sense is that, you know, were he to stay in one place, he would sort of lose perhaps perspective, you know, he would lose that connection that he has. And, you know, he sees, I mean, perhaps the big, I don't know, the, the, the defining feature of Gandalf is that he sees the hope of the world in, in you know, in, in the, the, the hobbits, in the, the peoples of Middle-earth who are usually overlooked. I think that's his. And so yeah. his mission is to, um, is not to necessarily run the council, which is, you know, by definition, basically like the cabinet, you know, like, you know, he's declining the presidency in favor of, you know, being the, the sort of community organizer, if you like, you know, it's like if Barack Obama had remained a community organizer instead of becoming the president. <laughs> yeah. Well, he says, he says, um, I love this. Um, Many are the strange chances of the world, said Mitrandir, and help oft shall come from the hands of the weak and the wise mm. falter. Mm. I think that's, that's very and, Gandalf, yep. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think it's it's instructive how how his his possible sort of mm. role as, as a leader of the of, of the Council of the Wise gets hands over to, to, to Saruman and blah blah blah. Um, so Gandalf in, in in this in this um in this telling mm. of the tale Gandalf is billed as um, essentially the like the guy who doesn't want to be president that you want to be president. <laughs> yeah, right? sure. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. And that's fair enough. Like that. That seems to be kind of true. Like that seems to be the kind of guy that mm. you want the ring, etc. Um, and then it's revealed that that he has sort of been in control of um, one of the elvish rings mm. the whole time. Mm-hmm. A, how do you square that? Like, how, like what? What does that tell you about the the sort of reliableness of the of the narrative? Like, do we have an unreliable narrator in the mix? And, and B, does this sort of fall in line with what I kind of sensed earlier, which is which is that um, Tolkien doesn't necessarily believe that the the answer to to technology is 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 nature or no technology, but the answer to technology is rather good technology or um, mm. sort of um, well-handled technology or something. What say you to that? Wow, both great questions. Because so, it's, it's, if this is to be believed, it seems like Gandalf has just had this Elvish yeah. ring this whole time and he's playing up he's playing up this whole thing about um, you know not wanting to handle the one ring because he can't he can't handle the power of so, the one ring and, and, and yet uh, yeah. so, so your point is that Gandalf is sort of hypocritical here because he has this powerful ring, but he's talking about humility and, and you know, hmm. yeah, in a good but way. in a good way to 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 the benefit mm. of everyone. I don't know. I think that's a good question. And and again, for example, at the start of the Fellowship of the Ring, where Bilbo is, you know, he discovers that Bilbo's ring is the One Ring, and he's sort of 
feels tempted by it or, you know, he resists the temptation, perhaps. One can sort of, there's no sense there that Gandalf has a ring of power, I think. I think think that um, mm-hmm. that's still left very ambiguous to the reader. But that is a good question. I think it goes back to the power of the, the three elven rings, which, of course, are not in domination of other people necessarily. Um, but they are in coercion of, of sort of the landscape or, or nature, if you want to think about it like that more, more abstractly. So it is a good question. I, I'm not really sure what, what Gandalf's ring is designed or sort, sort of achieves. And if, if, as I said before, the ring is sort of amplifies Gandalf's own personality or his own efforts to give hope and, and stuff to people, um, <laughs> like, is that a kind of coercive force or is that, you know, just... <laughs> so I think, yeah... I don't know exactly at what point Tolkien decided to give Gandalf the ring, whether indeed that was the idea when he started reading, started writing uh, those chapters. Um, yeah, yeah it because it does seem like an odd, an odd choice. But yeah. yeah, so that's a good question. And and I guess hmm. question I had because because you know that changes the way that that um that one deals with the character of uh, yeah, Gandalf, yeah. you know, throughout throughout the whole thing and and. and then is, is Tolkien's point not so much that the rings of power, you know, if, if we are to sort of view them as technological proxies, mm. Mm. you know, how much is he a, a, um, a, a preservationist versus um, how much of, uh, like, how much is uh, in sort of innovative light? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, because, because you know, viewed in a certain light, it could be said that um, even if someone like Gandalf is is only who he is because, you know, secretly he's had a ring of power mm. the whole time, mm. that tells me that there's a whole different layer to this. It's not so much anymore that um, the world needs to be preserved, you know, in, in this way. It tells me that, no, the world needs to be innovated. It needs to be, like, it just changes the whole, mm. like, that... that 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 little fact, I don't know how, I don't know when and how Token came up with it, but the fact that Token thinks that it's it's relevant that Gandalf had one of the three elvish rings yeah. throughout the whole yeah. thing, it throws a wrench in the whole works for me. To me, I look at that and I think, oh, so you don't think that, like, you don't think that technology is bad. <laughs> you think that technology has to be used for the good. Yeah, and, I think that... And this is how yeah, you, there's you a, know. Yeah, there's an ambiguity there, I think. Um, because, of course, I think in that letter, and also in The Rings of Power, and The Lord of the Rings itself, as Lothlorien, for example, is presented as this beautiful place. It's not a bad place. It's not a horrific place. And, you know, I think for the duration of The Lord of the Rings, perhaps, if, if we're to think that Gandalf has this ring... You know, we're to think that okay, that that's perhaps a good thing in in a general sense, um, because it I don't know gives aid again, amplifies his own innate sort of power for good or whatever. Uh, but that again, when the One Ring is destroyed, that 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 power dissipates. Of course, Gandalf goes across the sea. And that's in some sense also a good thing. That that he you know there's not this being in Middle Earth who sort of you know strides around with this ring of power, and it's only relevant in in this perhaps a dire situation the end of the third age uh you know when when he's confronting sauron but but thereafter it's sort of um, uh its uses you know are no longer required and so you know <laughs> perhaps something like that is you know tolkien would say something like that but but i agree it, it is sort of the, the use of that ring is, is um, i mean in the lord of the rings itself i think i think at the end uh we find out that gandalf had a ring i think in that the, the chapter when they sail over the sea but it's only at the very end and of course 
we find out that Galadriel and Elrond have their rings um, in the first book, I, th- I think, or at least in, in the Fellowship of the Ring. So, um, yeah, the use of, or Gandalf's use of the ring, the power of the ring is, is, is ambiguous. Um, but I think certainly the fact that he sort of leaves Middle-earth, taking the ring with him, of course, after that task is completed, you know, perhaps suggests that the power... Th- well, I mean, the, the power is dissipated anyway by, by the one the destruction of the One Ring, but it suggests perhaps that Tolkien's view might might be that Gandalf was benevolent and good, but only necessary for the moment, the historical moment that that he sort of came to address, which is sort of one of sort of existential yeah, existential seriousness, and that thereafter it, it's you know. It's up to the it's up to Aragorn and, and his sort of more more mundane, elevated if mundane human mortal regime to to deal with, um, as opposed to the sort of um, the immortals like like Gandalf's like Gandalf and their magic rings. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Does that does that go to something of what you're talking? No, no, that that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I think I think that speaks to a much more complicated understanding of. of of token than um, than a lot of people are sort of hip hip to. Yeah, I, th- I think that's 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 really um, that's really that's really complicated of him. That's really you know there's there's multiple layers there in the way that you analyze politics, um, and it doesn't at all jive with the kind of people that I see sort of generally on on sort of you know token internet where. <laughs> Um, they analyze whatever you know based on some sort of loose um, World War Two or Catholic <laughs> you know um, analogy, yeah, I mean, hmm. but um, this kind of thing really suggests that that um, he really thought about the world in 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 a, in a really complicated way, hmm. and and that this and and he, and he says even in the in the in the Baldwin letter that um, he didn't intend he doesn't intend this. To just be an analogy, hmm. right? Because there are plenty of analogies. He says that somewhere, right? Um, yeah, I mean, he he has a famous sort of um, distaste for some forms of allegory. Um, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think what you said before about it being literature is true. I, I think we need to just get away from analyzing this as a kind of restatement of the Catholic catechism. It's clearly not that. That's not what it's doing. That's not what it is. There are many influences. There are multiple influences, not least, of course, his own personality, which is complex in its own sense. Um, his own learning. It's multifaceted. It's its own thing. It stands, you know, it, it's idiosyncratic. And I think increasingly my feeling is as time goes on, people are starting to see talking as a very idiosyncratic writer. like Someone like William Blake, right? Someone who's complicated and has produced a kind of very, um, in some senses, obtuse, you know, mythology, um, mythological cycle. Um, and, of course, Blake perhaps has never been as popular as Tolkien. I mean, Tolkien's not exactly analogous to Blake, um, but I think there are some similarities there. Um, you know, my, my impression is not that Blake ever produced a popular work that was consumed by... Yeah, you know the majority of the population. It was it was always kind of it was always kind of uh, perhaps a you know although I don't know he, he's popular popular enough I suppose but but um, for, for sure you know I, I think something like that comparison is more useful than um, Tolkien and I don't know modern, some other modern fantasy writer who you might want to think about 
Um, and I've said a few times that, yeah. you know, I think that the modern fantasy genre, you know, takes certain aspects of Tolkien, but, but, um, but is its own thing. And Tolkien sort of remains idiosyncratic, like, like Blake, to some extent, perhaps like all the romantics, I guess. Well, I, I mean, I think certainly, um, yes, all of which is to say, I agree that, that it's not simply, it's not good enough to simply read Tolkien as an, as a restatement of Catholic theology or anything else. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think when, when it comes to, to Tolkien's obsession with the, with the fall, you know, this, this happens in the, in the, um, in the, in the volume. Yes, yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he's, he's, he devotes several pages to, to falls of various mm, kinds. Mm. And he says, um, in the cosmology, there is a fall. A fall of angels, we should say, but quite different in form, of course, to that of Christian myth. So he, he really he really separates himself. He goes on to say, there cannot be any story without a fall. All stories are ultimately about the fall, at least not for human minds as we know them and, and have them. Um, so I, I kind of think mm. that... that you you see him here actually like throughout the Walden letter you you see him grappling with what what Harold Bloom calls the the anxiety mm. of influence. I, I I don't know if you're familiar with with that yeah, concept, yeah. but um um just the 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 idea that that um you know one can't help but be influenced by by something yeah. and yet um. The idea, you know, the thing is that you want to be totally original. So, so the the, the sort of anxiety that's born out of that is is the sort of the, the sort of driving force in in, in, in the sort of central creativity of your whole yeah. endeavor. Um, and and I sort of feel Tolkien's anxiety of influence. <laughs> yeah. Um, in 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 this in this whole letter, you know, <laughs> where. Um, yeah. And he, he's, he seems to go out of his way to, he seems to go out of his way to, um, to, to try to disregard the Bible and to disregard Shakespeare and Milton <clears throat> and Blake. <clears throat> and, um, and to me, that's a clear sign that he's aware of exactly where his influences are coming <laughs> yeah. from. I think you're right about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, because this is this is exactly what I do, you know. I, I send I send people I send people my recordings, you know, and and, and then I, I send my friends who who also play the flute my my recordings, and I say, you know, um, you know, I, I send I send them a follow up recording of of mm. some other flutist who's playing the same piece that I am, and I say, I'm not doing it like this. <laughs> Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? That means that I've listened to that recording 500 million times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's on my mind, and uh, it's influenced me. It's, it's, <laughs> and I'm thinking about it all the time. I, I wake up and I'm yeah. thinking about it, and, and it's, and I go to sleep and I think, um, how can I not? How, how, how can I move mm. past this? Or how can I recreate this? Or how mm. can I do something mm. else with this? Mm. Um, I get the same feeling when I read this letter to 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 um, Milton Waldman or whatever his name is. Um, I get the sense that that he just can't he can't um, avoid this anxiety of influence. You know, he, he's trying too hard. <laughs> I and um, 
the the and you know it's it's too too clear like the the fact that um that um I, I have written here I have um Malkor to Morgoth Lucifer to Satan Myron to Sauron mm-hmm. yeah 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 um you know he he can't even avoid giving them uh, different names after their fall <laughs> you know yes yes I mean certainly. And and the fact that those are the most interesting characters, the characters that drive mm. the entire plot mm. for the thing, they they are the authors yes. of the entire yeah. story. Yeah, certainly there's an influence there, and I, I think you know one one can of course see, especially with those sort of dark lord figures, the influence of course of, of, of Satan and of Lucifer, and perhaps especially on well in the Silmarillion itself, um, I think Milton's Satan. Influences, you know, is, is a precursor to Feanor, the elves, um, who makes the Silmarils mm. themselves. But um, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that letter is. I, th- I guess that brings us to the question of what this letter is achieving. And obviously, we've been talking particularly about its uh, its uh, treatment of, of the rings, and perhaps Tolkien reveals more about the motives of the elves there than he does elsewhere, especially in again in their. Um, the sort of desire to sort of sit at the top of the hierarchy, but you know, I think you're right that that letter also, um, you know, reveals something of Tolkien's own anxieties, which is influencing and which is interesting. And you know, it's also interesting that this is now printed at the beginning of the book. Um, I don't know, we haven't read this entire book, of course, the whole Cimmerian for this podcast. But how do you think that? Do you think that's a useful strategy? You know, to sort of hit readers with this as a kind of introduction, and then Tolkien's own words therefore sort of come to stand as perhaps a kind of kind of canonical interpretive lens. <laughs> no, no, I don't think it's useful at all. <laughs> yeah. So you would not print no, it I, I, I think I think it's, it's, no, no, I, w- I would not print it this way. I, th- I think it's tremendously unuseful, actually. Yeah. It's actually, it's, it's worse than <laughs> useful, yeah. I, I kind of think, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm biased as someone... <laughs> Who makes sure, things? Yeah. So you're just like Fianor. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I have never felt that confident making mm. a thing mm. that I would want to put it out into the world as, uh, as it is the way the people mm. in the world want people outside of the people who are making <laughs> things want to interpret okay. it as. I'm not sure if that made sense. But. I think so. So, I mean, obviously um, he's talking to his publisher here. So do you think there's a sort of, I mean, you've talked about a sense of anxiety or a sense of the anxiety of influence. Do you think maybe that that betrays a deeper sort of uncertainty about the project? I think it does. And I don't think he would have been happy with this being published. Yeah, I mean, I the letter know. is already I, I, published in the letters of J.R. Tolkien, so it's interesting that this was put as a kind of introduction to the Silmarillion, as a kind of sort of interpretive key. When he was still Oh, no, no, alive. no, he was, his, this, his son did this. So the second edition came out in 1999, okay. um, uh, and that's when this letter was um, appended to the, the book, to the, the Silmarillion, as a kind of introduction. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting choice, and of course, not it was not written uh, as such. It's not written as an introduction to the book, really. Yeah. I mean, not for public consumption, as you say. I, I disagree with the choice <laughs> categorically. Yeah. I, I think I, I feel the way that I do about the 
20 extra minutes of Space Odyssey that uh, was released some time ago. I forget yeah. when. But, you know, St- Stanley Kubrick said explicitly mm. um, on his deathbed, yeah. he said, he said, um, you know, in my basement, you can walk downstairs in yeah. my basement. There are all these files. Uh, sorry, there are all these mm. films. And, um, and what I want you to do right now is to go take them to the dump and burn them. <laughs> yeah. Because because there are because there are no alternative mm. cuts, you know what I, what I did is what I did and that's what I wanted to do, and there's nothing yeah. else. And and yet and yet people didn't people didn't listen to him and and now there's some sort of like you know director's cut or space odyssey or whatever when it's on the record <laughs> he didn't mm. that. So it's exactly not a director's cut. I don't know. I mean, I kind of <laughs> it seems it's exactly not what? a director's cut. <laughs> The yeah, exactly. It's 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 a it's sort of like a um uh someone who knew the director wanted a cut. Right, <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Um and I kinda get the feeling that uh a lot of what we see about the Lord of the Rings is kinda like that, you know, it's yeah. Because I mean, he he coughs to the impossibility of the project. Oh, yeah, sorry. yeah. He he coughs to the he, he coughs to the impossibility of the project in the beginning. True, he says it's absurd. Yeah, of the letter. And yet, um, when you read, when you read, um, you know, finalized editions of it, uh, they're they're of of him pretending. Pretending like finality exists, where where in well, fact the opposite is true, where where finality does not exist, and he knows well, I guess, it. I guess maybe, and he's just sort maybe of maybe his son. To... Yeah, um, of course, his son edited this um, into existence. And if you read some of the, um, you know, I think in general, I think it, it's something like, put it this way: had Tolkien finished the Silmarillion around the same time that he published Lord of the Rings, this is what we would have gotten. But had he lived longer and finished the Silmarillion, this is not what we would have gotten. So it's it's, it's a Silmarillion that yeah. Christopher Tolkien has edited together. It's the most congruent with the Lord of the Rings, um, but it's not necessarily. Now, does that mean that does that mean that it sort of lacks authority, or you know, I don't think there's any one. I don't think there's really a canon in in Tolkien. I don't think that makes any sense. But you know, I think certainly sort of ascriptions of sort of finality, as you say, yeah, are, um, are sort of, um, by Tolkien or otherwise, are kind of um, incoherent, given the manuscript tradition, if you like, that we actually have, which is unfinished, yeah. you know, which is incomplete. And not only not, not only is it um, unfinished, but it's kind of, it's kind of, um, like pointlessly so, you know. It's not. It's not like. It's not like, like uh, Schubert's ninth, you know, <laughs> which, which uh, is is unfinished. But you can sort of hear the themes, and be like, oh yeah, this is where he, you know, this is um, this is how he probably would have finished it. Like you, you, you can kind of finish Schubert's ninth in a way that I don't think you can. Fin- I think Togan was on a uh, on a. He was embarking on a quest. <laughs> That I don't think was um, eagerly 
sorry, uh, easily, not eagerly, easily finished, <laughs> right? I, I, I don't think he could. I don't think he could really very easily look at uh, his unfinished text and say, "Yeah, I think I, I think I got it. I think, I think I can finish this one." Yeah, it, it follows a form or anything like that. Hmm. Um, especially considering the 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 total genius of some of the texts that we have read on this one, like Aldehuy mm. and Arandus. I, I think I think that that throws like a wrench in the works. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the great irony in the fantasy world is that you get these people who are who are sort of they they seem to be um, living on the on the drop of a hat of people like George mm. uh, Martin, and and people like him seem to be um, incapable of writing anything other than what they've already <laughs> written. So I don't know why why they're waiting. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what they're waiting for. It's going to be exactly what they know is going to be coming. Whereas someone like Token, um, you know, he can really surprise you by writing something like Aldarian and Miranda's, mm. mm. which, you know, no, no one That's would true. expect. That is a, yeah. So, you know, if he were still alive today, um, I would read something like that and say, no, I really do truly want to know what he writes next because whatever he writes next is going to be better than whatever I can think of next, which I can't say is true of George R. R. Martin. So I don't really care what he writes or thinks of next because it's just going to be the next thing in the, in the mm. story. Um, Same sort of thing. I, I don't know. I, I've, I've kind of, I've kind of devolved here, but, but yeah, you know absolutely. what I'm saying? No, absolutely. There's a certain, um, yeah, the creativity in Tolkien is, is, um, uh, is, is constantly renewed, at least um, in, in some sense, throughout his life, and we see that in the textual history of his documents. Um, I'm just going to pause for a minute and mm. again go to the bathroom. Is that all right? Yeah, this time I have to go. As yeah, well. yeah, let, let's do that. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we've talked about the letter of Milton Bob and whether or not that's really a good thing that this is appended to the Silmarillion. Um, itself, because uh, you know we, we've sort of mentioned that <laughs> Tolkien's perhaps doing certain things there that are motivated by um, perhaps anxieties that are not necessarily going to be apparent to the the lay reader of the book. But you know that aside, um, you know in thinking about what he says about the elves and the creation of the rings there, and also. In <clears throat> of the Rings of Power in the Third Age. Sorry, I'll just have some rum so my throat feels better. <laughs> there we go. Um, it cleans up oh, the bacteria. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, it's nice and warm just going down there. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? What's? I suppose this question can be asked in several ways. But first of all, what is? What's the great sin of the elves? I guess. What's the what's the problem that Tolkien sort of uh, isolates in, in terms of their creation of the rings? And then, I guess, in a broader sense, do we think do we agree with him there in in the letter? You know, keeping in mind that this letter is written for a particular purpose, and that he's you know that that he's in some sense making an argument about his mythology, about what it means and what it's for, um, as we've discussed. Do we agree with that assessment, or do we think? Um, that, you know, perhaps in some sense, Anatar slash Sauron is right, that 
that, that the valor that the gods neglect Middle Earth, that the elves are right to sort of want to pursue its enrichment. Um, I don't know. So yeah, w- uh, what do you think? I guess about that question. So so correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it it feels to me that the great sin of the elves is that they they want to um, they want to 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 own the world in the same mm. breath that they um, that they um, yes. preserve it yeah, yeah. And, and and they and they, they sort of um, that, that that seems to be it like they, they want to they want to have it thrive and mm. grow and and be be the sort of voluminous mm. thing in in the same breath that they that they wanted to to um for example fight against the the darkness of Sauron mm. that, that um mm. encroaches. Yeah. Which um I don't know if this is ever explicitly said, but my read on that has always been that um that you want you want your you want your um civilization to be sort of as um as um, sort of flexible as possible, mm-hmm. yeah. Because because um, you, you know you 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 wanted to be able to react to things like so on, <laughs> yeah. But um, in 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 any case, um, I, I I get the feeling that they that they 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 are not like they they are they are good guys who have no sense of um of what being good actually entails. <laughs> On a day-to-day basis, yeah. um, they, they, the elves are kind of your. Um, I don't necessarily want to say that they're 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 like you know woke people. That's that's not nice. Mm. Um, but but they, they, there's a sense in which they're kind of like, oh, you're talking about a thing, and and and, and you're right. You just you just totally missed the mark on 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 what is actually happening here. You know, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, yeah, I like. I think I think you're right that as Tolkien says in that letter, they want their cake and uh, how does he put it? They want to have their cake and eat it, or they want to have their cake. What does he say? Um, <laughs> he says they they, um, they want to. Um, yeah. yeah, I got it here. I got it right here. Yeah, don't have that. That's right. Hang on. I've read it before. Um. <laughs> Aha. But they wanted to have the cake without, without eating it. That's right. One of the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West. And yet to remain on the ordinary. Yes, that's right. Yes. Where prestige has the highest people above all that. Yeah. So it seems like there's a contradiction there. One can't, at the one. You know, one, one can't at once sort of have bliss, as Tolkien says. In other words, live in this sort of static realm of sort of the undead or the undying, but also also live in the world of change and decay. And you know, as we've talked about, so uh, it seems like, and, and and as we've said, the rings are kind of um, kind of means of, of achieving that at least sometime. But it seems like entropy is. You know, the second law of thermodynamics, you know, must must have its way eventually, right? So you can't you can't avoid it, which is essentially the major theme of 
the Lord of the Rings, by the way. Um, so I think that the elves, you know, and I think Tolkien makes a good case in that letter, whatever, you know, whatever else he might be doing there, that, that, um, you know, that the elves are sort of ultimately mistaken in, in their pursuit of that goal for that very reason. And, and the question is, you know, are we also sort of mistaken? Because it feels like modern culture is sort of split between those who would want to sort of go the elvish route or route as it were and those who would want to go sort of the route of um well i don't know if there's anyone who really represents that in the the book but um perhaps feanor i don't know although (laughs) he's a somewhat different case (laughs) you know as as you sort of said before the sort of creative destruction which maybe that's the only way to sort of actually live in the world because we sort of nature is such that that there is no there's no sort of end point at which you can sort of just live in, in sort of harmony with nature, right? That there's sort of constant, there's always going to be some sort of necessity for renewal regardless of how, yeah, I don't know what you think of that. I think, I think one, one runs into, one runs into problems of, of both nature and, um, yeah, artifice, yeah. like at, at, at every turn. And, um, I don't know. I think, I think at some point the, the, the only, the only move one could make. Is is the move where one says, uh, "Screw it! I'm just gonna go. I'm gonna go full. You know, I'm I'm gonna go. You know, I don't care what anyone <laughs> says. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do right. my thing." <laughs> um, mm. And I kind of wonder how much token went in that direction before people caught on. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting question. Cause I, I don't think it was um, here at this point. I think it was later. I think it was... Wh- where do you think the point was that Token felt like he could no longer... He could no longer write mm. a regular Lord of the Rings bit? Like, where do you think he felt the pressure of his own image? <laughs> I don't know. I think perhaps after he wrote the Lord of the Rings and sort of embarked on this quest to make everything to sort of philosophize about the whole thing. I think maybe that undid his creativity a little bit. <laughs> you know, yeah. Sort of in that sense, maybe he's, he's, you know, making a ring of power for himself, seeking to control and, and sort of coordinate everything. And in that sense, should we care about stuff that came before it? Like what, what, what's your, what's your stance on that? Like stuff that came before. What, what, like how much should we care about um, things like notes that he wrote, you know, pre Lord of the Rings, oh. he, that was just part of the notes that he, like, yeah, like, how much do we care about that? Um, well, <clears throat> it depends. Well, quite a lot, I would say. I mean, um, but I think you're right that I think the Lord of the Rings was a sort of a critical juncture in his creativity, um, obviously, and sort of changed everything, um, in a sense. So, but yeah, I mean, I think obviously you want to. If, if you're interested in creative process, then you want to take that all into account. But um, certainly writing the novel of The Lord of the Rings seems to have... Um, I don't know, it, it sort of grows in my esteem the more I read it, I think about it. Um, and I think part of that has to do with his sort of examination, if you like, of those themes that we've been talking about, you know, and how he deals with that in the in the book, in The Lord of the Rings, and then following that. Um, I think that's certainly the most interesting... In some sense, the most interesting period of his creativity is the 1950s early perhaps early 1960s before he starts sort of philosophizing um, <laughs> about his work and trying to turn it into a kind of um you know trying to turn it into a kind of <laughs> dogmatic canon um which thankfully he never does so how do you think about um about the work from this era um 
So from the Silmarillion era. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, again, I think it's the fact that it's unfinished just means that there's no, yeah, there's no sort of finalized canonical version. It means that it's hard to know exactly how to how to take it. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting trying to read him justifying and you know trying to trying to give meanings to his work uh, you know post hoc retrospectively um you know and and certainly the, the whole saga of the rings of power is a part of that and, and it grows during the, the period of writing the lord of the rings of course um and you know attains a sort of interesting thematic complexity as we've talked about uh, i think in some of these texts some of these especially the lord of the rings itself but also the rings of some of the other texts that he wrote post lord of the rings uh, in the later 50s but um yeah i don't know it's a hard it's a hard one it's a (laughs) meaning and you know yeah all those issues are are difficult yeah i think we just gotta say no one has the answer yeah yeah (laughs) anyway should we should we i suppose that's what you get when you when you both are that's good it's a discursive you know thing (laughs) we'll we'll, we'll call it that all right well thanks everyone for tuning in um i will be relaunching a patreon soon so i know that um you know we've had a we've got a sort of small cadre of listeners at the moment that um so when that relaunched i will let everyone know if if possible if you can it'd be great if you could support us on patreon when as i said when that relaunches so keep that in mind otherwise um hopefully we'll have a few interviews soon coming up and next time i'm not sure what we're going to talk about yet but something <laughs> it'll be something and you know I, I like this sort of idea of looking at as i said sort of a couple of couple of pieces you know in in um in these volumes in the Silmarillion or unfinished tales or something and then discussing that so we might go with something like that uh, thanks everyone and all the best